Good morning. If you will turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. If you're using Pew Bible, you can find our passage on page 694. Hebrews chapter 8, and if you, uh, if you found your spot, if you will stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 8, we will read the entire chapter this morning. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this marvelous passage, and we thank you for Christ, the mediator of a new and better covenant. May your word come alive for us today. May your spirit teach us and guide us into all truth. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when you think of monumental events in history, what do you think of? I, I mean, seismic events. Events that reverberate across not only decades, but centuries. Talking about things like the invention of the will, seismic events. Maybe you think of Gutenberg's printing press. Where would we be without it? it, it the, the invention of this has had widespread repercussions. Or we could think of the Reformation. We are still experiencing the effects of the Reformation. As Americans, and, and even across the world, we can think of the Declaration of Independence. We can think of the Constitution, the Revolutionary War, and the impact that the nation of America has had around the world, or the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II, and, and how it has still had ongoing effects. We can make a list of historical events that have had massive impacts on the world, but none would come even close to the monumental event that is the coming of Christ. Paul calls this historical moment the fullness of time. This is what all of history was leading up to and all of history is flowing out of. The New Testament treats the first coming of Christ as the inauguration of the last days. 
we, we measure the years by the coming of Christ. B.C., A.D., even the, the more secular scholars that try to use before the common error and after the common error, you have to ask the question, what was the event that brought us from before the common era to after the common era? It is the coming of Christ. But you may be newer to Christianity. You may not be as familiar with God's word. And, and you may not quite realize that your Bible is divided by the coming of Christ also. You open your Bibles and you come to the Gospel of Matthew. And if you hang a left you'll come to a page that reads the New Testament. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. This word testament, it comes from the Latin, testamentum. And I think that uh, one of the weaknesses of us seeing this division in the Bible and, and not quite knowing what it means is that our common English definition of testament is more like someone offering proof or, or offering testimony. It's a testimony to his intellect. Or last will and testament, the document that, that expresses your final desires for your property after you've died. And that's not what this word means. That's not what the Latin word testamentum meant, and it's not what the Bible uses this language for. It's the word covenant. It's the word covenant. You can substitute testament for covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. That's how your Bible is divided. It's divided around what we're talking about today in Hebrews chapter 8. We come to a kind of a turning point in the book of Hebrews. We've been talking about Jesus's qualifications for high priest. We've been talking about who he is in his office. And now we're coming to a place where we're going to make a, a slight switch into, okay, what does that mean? What does he do as high priest? And so we come to verse, uh, chapter eight, and I would say that this is the heart of the book. This is where it's all been leading to, and this is where the rest of the book is going to flow from. And, and I think that it, if this chapter is the heart of the book, I think the heart of the chapter is verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is the same phraseology that we find at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, where it's talking about his name, who he is, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the beginning of the book, we're seeing that his name, his person is far superior than, than the angels because he is, his name that he inherits is more excellent. And now we see that he has obtained a ministry that is far better, far more excellent than the old because he mediates a covenant that is better. And it is enacted or it's legislated, it's sanctioned. It's the same word that's used in chapter 7, verse 11, that's translated as the people received the law. Now they, the, the covenant that he mediates is better since it is enacted. It is received on better promises. And so I think that verse 6 is the heart of this chapter and the chapter is the heart of the book. It's where everything has been leading us to. It's where everything is going to lead us out of. And so verse 6 is going to be our outline. We're going to look at Christ's better ministry. We're going to look at the better covenant that's enacted on better promises. That's our outline today. Better ministry, better covenant, better promises. 
and the implications should be very clear. They should have been very clear to the original recipients of the letter. They should be very clear to us. If Christ has inherited or obtained a better ministry, a more excellent ministry, because he mediates a better covenant that is enacted on better promises, then you would be insane to abandon it. It would be spiritual suicide for you to know that Christ has a better ministry and a better covenant that has better promises than the old and then to throw up your hands and say, the persecution is too much. The trials are too much. The opposition is too much. I'm going to go back to the old. I'm going to go back to the inferior. It would be insanity. So cling to Christ. Cling to Christ as your only hope. That's the implication of verse 6. And we're going to see it fleshed out as we walk through chapter 8, and I would hope to impress upon you the importance of this today, the importance of clinging to Christ because of his better ministry as he mediates. He's the go-between of a new covenant, and this new covenant, it contains better promises. So let's look at our passage this morning. And let's look at verses 1 through 5. And let's see Christ's better ministry. And this is going to be a lot of, of review. If you've been listening, if you've been here for the book of Hebrews, especially the, the last several weeks, this is going to be a lot of review. And we need, we need this. If the Bible repeats something over and over and over again, it's because we are stupid and we're forgetful. And we need to hear it again and again. So if you come across the same ideas over and over again, that's not your cue to say, I have already heard this, skip. We don't fast forward through those. We say, why is he repeating the same things? It's because you need to hear it. Because it's important for you. And so let's look at Christ's better ministry. He says in verse 1, the point in what we are saying, or the sum, um, this, uh, this word that's translated as the point is um, it's translated in Acts chapter 22, verse 28, to talk about a sum of money. So all of what he's saying, everything compiled together, the point in what we're saying is this. This is why I think that this is the heart of the book, is that he's saying everything I've been saying up to this point we have such a high priest. Look back up the end of chapter 7. It was indeed fitting, verse 26, that we have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And you can read it and say, man, that sounds too good to be true. Wouldn't that be something if we had, some, if we had a priest like this? And so he says in verse 1, he says, the point of, of everything I've been saying, the sum total of everything that I've been saying is this is the high priest we have. This is not hypothetical. This is not, oh man, I, I wish that this was true. If you are a Christian, you have this high priest. He's not someone else's high priest. He's yours. Amen. This is the good news of the gospel, that you have such a high priest. And he has a better ministry. What do we mean by ministry? If verse 6 says that Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, what do we mean by ministry? And this word um, that translates in verse 6 is ministry. It's, it's used uh, all over the book of Hebrews uh, from this point, chapter 9, verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 14, chapter 10, verse 2, chapter 12, verse 28, chapter 13, verse 10. It all, uh, in all those places, it's dealing with worship 
and especially the role of the priest in worship. And so again, he's talking about the fact that he is this priest and he is working and, and he is functioning in this priestly manner. He's bringing us to God is what we're told in chapter 7. The law can't do it. The Levitical priest can't do it. Christ, the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he has obtained a better ministry, a better act of service, a better act of worship that actually brings you to God. So how is it better? How is it better? Well, we see it in three ways. Verse 1, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He is the better high priest. He is superior to all of the Levitical priests. So again, we have to remember the context of the, the, that the original recipients are, are reading this book in. They have grown up knowing that there is a temple in Jerusalem where priests who are descended from Aaron, they are Levites, you can't serve as a priest any other way, you have to have genealogical proof. You have to go to Ancestry.com and you have to get all of the documents that show you that you trace your line all the way back to Moses' brother Aaron. They serve in the temple in Jerusalem and they offer animal sacrifices. They're the ones that go through all the rituals. And the only way that a person can approach God in this way is through the Levitical priest. There is no other way. You can't redefine it and say, well, they've got the priest, but I'm a good person, so I can go to God too. That's not how it worked in the old. You had to go through the priest. You could not approach God any other way. It had to be through priesthood. It had to be through a specific priesthood, and they had to worship God in a certain way to bring you near to God. And what we have been learning through chapter 6, chapter 7, now in the chapter 8, is Christ is better. He is better than all of the Levites, all of the hundreds of Levites who offer all of the thousands upon hundreds of thousands upon millions of animal sacrifices. He is better. He offers a better sacrifice. And he does this in a better temple. So he's a better priest, but we see that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We'll be talking about that more as we get into chapter 10. That's Psalm chapter 110 verse 1. And the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He is that priest. But it says in verse 2 that he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He ministers in the true tent, not opposed to a false tent. As the, the temple in Jerusalem, it's not false. It's not uh, something that Moses just invented, as we'll see in just a minute. But there is a greater tent. There's a greater tabernacle. There's a greater temple. And the Jerusalem temple, as we'll see in verse 5, is a copy of this one. But this temple, it's set up by God. It's not set up by man. And so he is a better priest who ministers in a better temple than the one in Jerusalem. And also he offers better sacrifices, is what verse 3 says. It says, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. The priest in the temple in Jerusalem, they're not just standing around twiddling their thumbs. They're not just singing pretty songs. They are cutting the throats of animals and offering blood sacrifices on an altar for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the priests are doing. Jesus, if he's going to be a priest, he has to offer a sacrifice also. And as we saw in chapter 7, verse 27, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
In chapters 9 and chapters 10, they are going to be expounding upon this better sacrifice. And so we won't belabor it much just yet. But Christ's sacrifice on the cross of his own perfect body, unstained by sin, is superior to animal sacrifices. Because the Levitical priests, they had to offer animal sacrifices again and again and again, time after time, every single day, every single week, every single month for a thousand years. And Christ has offered a once-for-all sacrifice. And we're going to see the repercussions of that in just a minute. So he's a better priest at a better temple offering better sacrifice he has a more excellent ministry than the old. But look at verses 4 and 5. And this is, this is where we're getting in, in, this, um, in this review, as we're remembering the things that we've been talking about from chapter, the end of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 7 of his priesthood and his sacrifice. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. This is going back to chapter 7, um, verses 12 through 14, the fact that there are already priests in Jerusalem that are Levites. And Jesus, it's common knowledge that he is from the tribe of Judah. So he is not under the law sanctioned to offer sacrifices as a priest. And so there has to be another priesthood, a better priesthood. And so he's just, again, reiterating in verse 4 the fact that if he were a, a priest on earth in the Jerusalem temple, there would be no room for him because there are already priests there. They're not going to step aside and say, let the, let the priest from Judah come and offer sacrifices because that's not what the law says. The law does not sanction anyone other than a Levitical priest to offer sacrifices. And so he can't be a priest on earth offering sacrifices in a, a temple building in Jerusalem. But look at verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. He goes on to say, when Moses was about to erect the tent, the, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The earthly ministry of the Levites, it was a copy and a shadow of a heavenly ministry. Um, the word copy, it means a, a figure or a model or an example. It's used in John chapter 13, verse 15, where Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples and he says, I have given you an example that you're supposed to follow. Right? This is the same way with the tabernacle that Moses was supposed to construct. He was supposed to construct a tent and he was supposed to make it after the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. And this is a really interesting verse. This is, um, it's found in Exodus 25, verse 9, Exodus 25, verse 40. It's found four times in Exodus. Exodus 25, 9 and 40, Exodus chapter 26, verse 30, and Exodus 27, verse 8. He's told four times. You're supposed to make this, be sure, be careful. Um, some translate the, that phrase he was instructed by God as he was warned by God. Make this earthly tabernacle after the pattern of what you were shown or literally which you are caused to see. What this means is that in some way God literally showed Moses the heavenly temple. He showed Moses something. Whether he showed him a model or he showed him in a vision, the heavens open and he saw something. He saw the heavenly tabernacle 
And he was warned, don't deviate. Construct this earthly tent, this earthly tabernacle, after the exact pattern that you've been caused to see with your eyes. And I find that so fascinating. We see this heavenly tabernacle opened in Revelation chapter 11 and Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 15. We see this, 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 uh, this temple that's opened. These Levitical priests are serving in the copy. Jesus enters into the real. They're serving in the, the shadow. Jesus enters into the heavenlies and he is ministering in the true. He's, he is ministering in the one that the one on earth is just a copy. We see this in chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You can jump over to verses 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. So he's talking about the earthly tabernacle. Everything had to be purified with blood. But, he says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What is better, the original or the copy? The implication is clear. The original is superior. The original is superior. And so the ministry is superior. And the sacrifice that had to be made had to be superior. Jesus did not go into the heavenlies with animal blood. He went into the heavenlies with his own perfect blood. We get caught up in earthly realities. Sights and sounds and, and taste and touch. And it is very easy for us to see that these these. New Christians who are coming out of Judaism who know that there is a temple in Jerusalem and I can actually go to it. I can see it with my eyes. I can walk into it. I can hear the sounds of, of the priest offering sacrifices. I can see these sacrifices. I can, I can smell it. And we get caught up in thinking, this is better because I can see it and I can touch it. And the author of Hebrews is saying, not so fast. That's just a copy. It's just a shadow. There is an original. There is the true tent. There is the better tent in heaven. That's where Jesus ministers. Don't trust just what your eyes see. Don't just trust what your ears hear. There's something better. There's something superior. Jesus has already gone there with his own blood. He's ministering there for you. Copies and the shadows of the Old Covenant were always meant to point to the greater reality found in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 give us an idea of, of this. Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these, these, these weekly and monthly and yearly um, festivals that the, the Jews were required to practice in the law. He says, don't let 
anyone judge you in regards to these practices? Because he says in verse 17, these are a shadow. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 8. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance or the body belongs to Christ. And this helps us to understand how we ought to read and interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. In the copies and the shadows and the types of the Old Testament, we see the reality which is found in Jesus. And to read the Old Testament any other way is to miss this greater ministry that Jesus has come to accomplish. So when you open up your Old Testament, you're looking at the copies, you're looking at the shadows, you're looking at the types, and all of those things, and all of, the, all of their ministry that we see in the Old Testament, they're all pointing to Jesus. And they find their, their culmination and their climax in what Christ has done on the cross. That's why we can very easily say the gospel is preached in the Old Testament. It's there. It's all there. All the pictures are there. All the copies are there. We just have to pick up on the fact that they're copies that are pointing forward to a greater reality and a greater ministry that's found in Jesus. So his ministry, it's, it's more excellent than that of the old because the, the old is, is nothing but a bunch of copies and shadows. But now he has a better ministry. He has the full light has come, the, the full body and and. and Everything that, that all these shadows were pointing forward to has come in Jesus. So when you read your Old Testament, look for Jesus. He has a better ministry. He has a better ministry because he mediates a better covenant. He mediates a better covenant. That's what verse 6 says. He's obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. And we see this in verses 7 and 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Look at verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Well, the first thing that we need to do is we need to define what we mean by a covenant. It's not a word that we use very often. Um, a very simple answer is found in the children's catechism that the children learn on Wednesday nights. What is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. Right. Let's give a, a little more fleshed out definition as it pertains to God and man. So man can enter into covenants together. It's an agreement between two or more persons. But let me give a, a, a more fleshed out definition as it pertains to the covenants that God makes with man. A covenant is a solemn oath that's initiated by God. So the people are not initiating a covenant with God. God is initiating it with man. It's sealed by a sign. There's some kind of visual element that goes in the covenant. It's filled with obligations on the part of God and man. God says, I will do this, you do this. It's also accompanied by promises and sanctions or blessings and cursings. If you do this, this will happen. If you don't do this, this will happen. And we need to make a distinction between a, a covenant and a contract. Because we know what a contract is, a business contract where you sign on the dotted line and you have to fulfill these obligations. But a covenant is different because there's a relational element to it. It's not, uh, it's not just this cold business dealing. There is a relationship that's behind it. And the best example that we have is marriage. Marriage, despite what our culture treats it like, is not a cold, lifeless contract. It's relational. 
There's a relationship to it. Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife in sickness and in health? Better or worse, richer or poorer, love and cherish till death do us part. There's promises. There's promises. There's a sign, right? There's a sign. There's a ring. You put this ring on the person's finger as a sign of the covenant. And you swear an oath. I do. It's a covenant. God enters into covenants with men. And there are six major covenants in the Bible. Covenant with Adam. Covenant with Noah. The covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Israel. Covenant with David. And the new covenant. And the covenants that we're talking about here in this passage are the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant is the Mosaic covenant or the law. It's what God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. They come out of Egypt. They uh, experience the Exodus. They cross the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai. God initiates a covenant with them. We see that this is exactly what he's talking about in verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's very explicit. This is the covenant that God entered into with Israel at Mount Sinai. And it's shorthand, we call it the law. It's the law. But God says that he's going to make a new covenant. This new covenant is a future covenant that will be given to God's people sometime after the exile in Babylon. And there are promises of this all over the prophetic books of the Old Testament. We'll read just two of them. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 4 through 10 Isaiah says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. That's the covenant that God made with Noah. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. It's a covenant that God is going to make and it's going to be similar to what we see in the covenant with Noah. Or Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 27. God says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There are similar passages all throughout the scriptures that are promising that God is going to do something new for his people and he's going to make a covenant with them. And what we see in verses 8 through 12 is the new covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It is the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. That should key us into something. 
This is important. This is important. This is the new covenant passage. But why does there have to be a new covenant in the first place? What's wrong with the old? Well, he says in verse 7, if that first covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He says the same thing in chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? If the first is good enough, why do we need a second? If the Levitical priests were good, why do we need a Melchizedekian one? If the first covenant was okay, why do we need a second one? And so we have to answer the question, what was wrong with the first covenant? Well, we see it all over the scriptures. If it was faultless or blameless, there wouldn't have been a need for a second one. But we can see this at the very beginning of the first covenant. At the very beginning, Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8, Moses brings the covenant down to the people. He reads it to them. The people say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Sounds pretty good, right? Until you flip over to Exodus chapter 32, and you see the people say, make us gods who shall go before us. Exodus 24, we'll do everything that the law tells us to do. And Moses sprinkles the people with the blood. He goes back up onto the mountain, and the people start worshiping other gods. They break it almost immediately. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God tells the people of Israel, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It's a very clear command. How do you circumcise your heart again? Jeremiah chapter 7. Look at Jeremiah chapter 7. Verses 23 through 26. Jeremiah chapter 7. Verses 23 through 26. Look at this summary of Israel's history. Remember, this is the same prophet that's going to write the new covenant passage in chapter 31, chapter 7, he writes this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. There's the covenant, the law. Do this, you'll live. But they did not obey or incline their ear but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. The failure of the first covenant, the failure of the, the law is not with the law itself because the Apostle Paul describes the law as holy and righteous and good. But look at verse 8 and see where the problem lies. For he finds fault with them. The problem is not the law. The problem is the people. There's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with the people. And so this first covenant, this old covenant, the law, it can't fix it. The law cannot fix what's broken in the people. And so God promises a new covenant. And that's the promise that we see in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And we read that in this new covenant, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, God in Christ does for the people what the law could not do for them. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, 
And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God does what the, the law could never do. The law can't change their hearts. And that's what the people need. They don't need more outward ceremonies. They don't need more rules. What they need is a transformed heart. They're in bondage. They're, they're helpless due to their, their sinful, corrupted natures. And they can't break free on their own. God tells them, you have to circumcise your heart. But the people, they can't do it. That's, that's an impossibility for the people. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says in the latter days, I will circumcise your heart. God will do for the people what the people could never do for themselves. That's why there needed to be a new covenant. And that's what Jesus has done. He has a more excellent ministry because he has and mediates a better covenant. A covenant that is not constrained to the outward uh, rules and rituals, but a covenant that actually does something to the heart. And so we come to our third point. He has a more excellent, better ministry because he mediates a better covenant that's enacted on better promises. Better promises. We see this in verses 9 through 13. Look at what he says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We're going to look at these promises more next week, and we're going to really dive into what does this mean for our own theology as a church. But let's do just kind of a flyover of these promises, and we'll see how they are better than the promises of the Old Covenant. The first promise is found in verse 10. God promises that I'm going to put my laws on their heart. How is this better? In the Old Covenant, the law was written on stone tablets, and it's put in the Ark of the Covenant. I can give my kids... Rule after rule in my house. Don't run. Don't fight. Don't wrestle right before bed. Someone's going to get hurt and they're going to be crying. Don't do this. Don't do that. And Julia can just kind of shake her head because she knows how that's going to go. As soon as we're out of the room, the kids are going to do exactly what the kids want to do. Because these rules, they hit their ears, but they stop before they reach their heart. And so these rules, they, they don't do anything to, to their desires. And it doesn't enable them to obey. That's what the law did. It was written on stone tablets. And what needed to be done is that the law needed to be written on hearts. Because that's the problem. The problem is the heart. The problem is the desires, the affections, the want to. The want to was not there under the old covenant. It's only under the new covenant that the law is actually put on people's hearts and the desire and the enablement to obey is given. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, you may have noticed that when he talks about what God is going to do to their heart, he also talks about what he's going to give to them. He's going to give them the spirit and the spirit is going to enable them to obey. Think about the laws. Think about the, we started reading the Sermon on the Mount today for our scripture reading. And we're going to get to it next week, which is not planned by us. It's providential that the law says don't murder. And so the people would not physically kill somebody. And they thought, we're keeping the law. And Jesus says, if you hate your brother, if you are angry with your brother without cause, you've killed him, you've murdered him in your heart. The law says, don't commit adultery. 
And so the people believed that if they didn't have sexual relationships with someone other than their spouse, then they were keeping the law. But Jesus says, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Do you see the problem? The law can tell you don't murder, don't commit adultery, but what do you do with the 10th commandment? How do you enforce do not covet? Because it's in the heart. We must be given new hearts that are released from the bondage of sin and radical corruption, and the new covenant promises this. Verse 10, he says that I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the covenantal formula that's found throughout the Old Testament. Look at Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12, and God promises, I will dwell in their midst and I will be their God and they will be my people. And then you get to the rest of the history of Israel and they rebel against God. They break the covenant and God in the book of Hosea says, they are no longer my people. But the new covenant promises that this is going to be different. There's not going to be separation from God and the people because of their sin and their rebellion. And the glorious promise found in Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 is that in the final state, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The new covenant brings this into reality. Whereas the nation of Israel, it, it experienced that separation from God. It experienced exile. It experienced judgment. It experienced death. In the new covenant, God's people will be, will be with God. They will, they will have him as their God, and, and they can have that, that knowledge that they belong to him. The third promise is found in verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This verb, to know, it's not, it's not head knowledge. It's not mere intellect. It's relational. So in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12... We have two priests, Hophni and Phinehas. They have head knowledge about who Yahweh is. They are ministering in the, in the tabernacle. They offer sacrifices. And yet, it still says they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. You could have priests under the old covenant who went through the motions, but they did not have the relationship. Judges chapter 2, verse 10, Israel, after the death of Joshua, it says that that generation passed and a new generation arose who did not know the Lord. So what did they do? They spiraled into chaos. And by the end of the book of Judges, we have a new Sodom and Gomorrah right in the very heart of the nation of Israel. Not because they didn't have head knowledge, but because they didn't have a true relationship with God. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. He goes on to say in verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The new covenant says, they will all know me. They'll all know me from the greatest to the least. They will all know me. And we're going to talk about that in more detail next week. And we're going to see what that means for our own theology. Verse 12 says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This should be a massive statement. A massive statement, because we've already talked about the multitude of animal sacrifices again and again and again. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Why? 
because there, there was no true forgiveness of sins under the old covenant. They, the animal sacrifices, they could not deal with sin. That's what chapter 10 says. The law is a shadow of the good things to come. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Don't miss that. Don't, don't try to explain away verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What does the last verse of the New Covenant passage say? God will forgive their sins. He will remember their sins no more. That is a massive statement. It is a massive statement. Something seismic has to happen in order for that to be true. And we see it in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. When Jesus takes the cup and he passes it around to his disciples and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Paul makes it more explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. His sacrifice is the final sacrifice. He is the one that could actually accomplish forgiveness of sins. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering the new covenant, that our sins are actually forgiven, that God does not remember our sins anymore. But we've got a, a, a few more promises that aren't quite as explicit, but they're just as excellent. For instance, verse 9 tells us that the new covenant is unbreakable. The new covenant is unbreakable. The new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The new covenant is not like that covenant. The old covenant, they broke. The new covenant is unbreakable. That's good news. That's good news. That is where your security comes from. That's where your confidence comes from. You do not have to fear the condemnation of your sins because the new covenant in the blood of Christ is unbreakable. We also see in verse 13, the new covenant will never end. It will never end. It will never be superseded by anything else like the old covenant because it actually perfects the people of God. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. William Tyndale, he translates that as abrogated. It's abolished. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, decaying because of old age, is ready to vanish away. It's ready to vanish away. The old covenant had grown obsolete because the blood of Christ has superseded it. Why go back to the, the Jerusalem temple and offer animal sacrifices when Jesus' death on the cross has actually accomplished everything that has been promised? And it's ready to vanish away. It's become so obsolete. It's become so irrelevant in, in the face of the excellency of Christ and his ministry and his covenant and his promises that in AD 70, the Roman army under Titus is going to raise the city to the ground and burn the temple. And the prophecy that Jesus gave that not one stone will be left upon another will come to fruition as the gold from the temple melts between the stones and the Romans, they tear each stone off of the other to get at the gold. No more temple no more priesthood, no more sacrifices. Christ has come. 
the law, we're told in chapter 7, verse 19, made nothing perfect. But the new covenant perfects the people of God. And it can never be superseded. What, what, what could come after the new covenant that would be better? There's nothing. It's final. And the final promise is that the new covenant is all of grace. It's all of grace. The law says, do this and live. God says six times in these verses, I will. I will. <laughs> you can see it. Look, look back. I will establish a new covenant. Verse 10, I will make this covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their minds. I will be their God. I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. This is all of grace. God does it. Jesus is the mediator of this new and better covenant. He's the one through whom this covenant comes. But if you'll remember back in chapter 7, verse 22, the writer has also said that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He's not just the go-between. He's not just the middleman or the arbitrator. He is the guarantee. The King James says he is the surety. He guarantees that all of these promises are applied to every single believer. I love that we sang, now why this fear before, before the sermon? Why fear? Jesus has set you free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins are actually atoned for. If you're in this new covenant, God's law is written on your heart. You've been given the Spirit. He is your God. You are His people. You know Him. You have a relationship with Him. He remembers your sins no more. This is a covenant that is unbreakable. It's a covenant that will never pass away. It's a covenant that is all of God's grace. Aren't these better promises? Aren't these better promises? He has a better ministry as our great high priest who ministers in the true tabernacle in heaven, bringing his own precious blood that atones for our sins. He mediates a better covenant, one that, that deals with our actual sin problem and not just outward ritual. It's enacted on better promises with Christ as the guarantee of every single promise for his people. The whole of human history is split into before Christ, after Christ. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Covenant, New Covenant. We live in the age of the New Covenant. Praise God. Praise God for his gracious providence to us. We do not live in the age of the old covenant. We live in the age of the new covenant. Christ has come and he is ministering for us in the heavenly temple. His blood atones for our sins. We are all part of the new covenant. His promises applied to us by his spirit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. No condemnation, no guilt for those who are in Christ. Don't take these promises for granted. Don't take these promises for granted. And if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, 
these promises are not for you. These promises are not for you if you are still living in your sin and rebellion. If you're still living in your unbelief. You can take no comfort from this passage. But there is hope. There is hope. There is a great high priest. There is a redeemer. There is a savior. There is one who has died and he's been raised from the grave. And he saves all who come to him in repentance and faith. Come to him. If you hear these, these great promises that are given to God's people, don't shrug your shoulders and say, eh, I'm fine. Everything's okay. Don't turn your back on these promises. Don't turn your back on this covenant. Don't turn your back on this Savior. Today, if you hear his voice, come to Christ. If you don't know how, if you don't know what that looks like, you don't know what that means, come and talk to me after the service. Come and talk to an elder. Turn to someone in the pews and say, I want to trust this Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Don't leave here today without being a member of the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you that everything we need is found in the blood of Christ. And all of these promises given millennia ago can be true for us. We can, we can experience the benefits of the new covenant if we just turn to Christ. Thank you, God, for these promises. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they might be encouraged, that they might meditate and dwell deeply upon this passage and what it means for, for their lives, what it means that, that they can live without fear, without condemnation, without guilt, that they can trust and rely and put all of their faith in Christ alone. And I pray for those here who have never trusted in Christ. I pray for those that sit and they can hear these promises and they can still be so unmoved. God, we see here in this passage that it is all of your sovereign grace. We plead with you, God, they have no regard for their eternal souls, but we, we plead on behalf of them. We care for them and love them. We have concern for them. We pray, God, that your spirit would do a work taking out their heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, circumcising their, their cold, rebellious hearts, writing your law on their hearts opening their eyes to see the beauty and glory and wonder of Christ. God, we pray you would do that even now. Do it for your glory, for the sake of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.